All right. Well, I am certainly thankful to uh, be here with you this evening to have the opportunity to preach to you. Uh, this is my first opportunity, in fact, to be uh, in this congregation. I've driven by it many times, and I, every time I do, I always say, wow, look at that beautiful church building. And it is a beautiful church building. Uh, people are nice, too. So I'm very thankful for the invitation, for the opportunity. Uh, every time I get the opportunity to, to preach and to speak, uh, it's a privilege I don't take lightly. But anytime I can go somewhere new and speak to a new bunch of Christians and new members of uh, my Christian family, it's a, it's a delight and it's a pleasure. And anytime I get the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject to talk about, which is the Word of God, uh, it, is, it is my honor. And that's what we're going to be talking about here this evening. The subject that I have been assigned is a disciple is governed by God's Word. A disciple is governed by the Word of God, the Bible. So let's just talk about the Bible. I do want to build up to that final part of this discussion, which will be that part where we talk about being governed by the Word of God and why we are governed by the Word of God. But I want to build up to that. Because all of us, I would imagine, in this room have an affinity for the Word of God. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here probably. Maybe there's somebody here who is just looking, who is seeking, and you're trying out different religious texts. But odds are everyone here has an appreciation for the Bible. But that is not the case when you leave this building. When you step out into the world around us, the appreciation for the Word of God is not there anymore. At least not to the extent that it was, let's say, 50, 60, 70 years ago. In fact, let's just think about that for just a second. You go back about 100 years, and the, the gap between the, uh, let's, let's call them the churched among us, and the non-churched, the people who regularly attended some worship service, on a semi, we'll say semi-regular basis, not just Mother's Day, Easter, Christmas, but let's say about 30 times a year they'd be in a church building, which 100 years ago was a, a pretty sizable portion of our country's electorate or population. And that compared to the other group of the population that did not regularly attend a church service. The gap in morality between those groups was relatively small. There was a lot of overlap in what was considered right and wrong, and what was considered just and unjust, what was considered moral and immoral between those who regularly worshipped somewhere and those who did not really go anywhere or have any kind of religious affiliation. But the gap today between the so-called churched and unchurched is tremendous. It is a Grand Canyon of a gap. It is a gorge between those who are on this side of that fence and who are on that side of that fence and what is considered moral and immoral, what is considered acceptable or a bridge too far. In fact, it's getting to the point where the people on that other side of that fence have no limit, have no border, have no wall, have no point at which they would say that's a bridge too far. It's getting to the point where the people on that side of that fence, that unchurched, unreligiously affiliated bunch, are saying, my philosophy is anything goes. And that's just the definition of hedonism. That's the, the pure idea of if it feels good, do it, which used to be just kind of a catch-all phrase that nobody sincerely lived by. But now there is a whole generation of people being taught and believing as though it were sound doctrine that we should just, if it feels good, do it no matter what it is. And if you don't like it, get over it. So the gap between the church and the unchurched, there's, I would say, hardly any overlap anymore in what is considered moral and immoral. And in the midst of all that, and perhaps as a result of that, if not because of that, 
the Word of God is, is no longer seen as this standard of right and wrong by even the unchurched. Because it used to be the case, 60, 70, 100 years ago, that even if you didn't regularly go to church, there was still a healthy respect for the Bible. That's why you hear things which sound so antiquated, they might as well not even be true anymore, that you hear things like, this country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Well, the Bible is a Judeo-Christian book. That's where that comes from. That idea that I may not go to church every Sunday, but at least I respect the Word of God, you can forget that. If you respect the Word of God, you're probably attending somewhere. And if you don't, you're probably not. There's been a huge split and a chasm that's formed in our culture. And so for me to say, I govern myself by the Word of God, 70 years ago, two generations ago, would not have been a radical statement. But today, it is. Today it is considered extremist. Today it is considered bizarre. Today it is very much the minority position to say, I govern myself or I allow myself to be governed by the Word of God. I believe there is an objective standard. I believe there is a right and wrong. And I believe that I am not the arbiter of what is right and wrong. I believe that someone bigger than me has decided what's right and wrong. And then thankfully for me, revealed to me, through the Word of God, what that right and wrong is so that I can do it and be faithful to Him. That's, to me, that's a sensible, sound, logical position. But I am growing increasingly in the minority of people who believe that. So to illustrate that point, I want to, before we get into actually being governed by the Word of God, I want to share with you something that I read not long ago from Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine which I doubt anybody even reads anymore, so I don't know what they're doing still publishing nonsense like this. But it's GQ Magazine, which is, as far as I know, I only ever just see the cover when I'm in a grocery store, and it's usually just some very attractive man in a well, very expensive suit posing with a face. That's GQ Magazine. But apparently on the inside, they have enough experts on the subject of books to be able to come out with what they call the most overrated, I don't know if you can read that on the screen, the most overrated books ever written. And it was this huge article of about 20 entries where they just broke down what they considered to be books that are wildly circulated, commonly read, favored and beloved by many, but in the end are overrated. Now you see where I'm going with this. You can guess a book that is on that list. But I would just note, and this is just me being weird, it was a great annoyance to me when I saw, not just that the Bible was on the list, because I expected that, but that the Bible clocks in at number 12. That it didn't come in at number one, which is where, if you're going to put it, you're going to put at number one spot the most esteemed position. You want to draw the most eyeballs to it. Or maybe at the very bottom of the list, the first entry. But instead, it was placed just kind of casually, apathetically, there in the middle of the list. Three paragraphs to say why it's overrated, and then they knocked it off to move on to the next one. That's a, a typical reaction to the Bible in the world today. It wasn't two generations ago. It was barely one generation ago. It was me as a young person with hair a generation ago when the Bible was militantly fought against by those who didn't believe it. When it was rabidly attacked and those who vocally spoke their faith and not just in a church building where it's convenient but out there where it's hard, those people were rounded up and, and pointed at and mocked and vilified. But it's growing more to be the case today where you're just ignored. And you're looked at as an oddity to be forgotten about. And the Bible as an antiquated book to be cast aside to the ash bin of history. I don't think that about the Bible. But I can see that idea in placing the Bible just, just in the middle and just ignoring it after that. 
in the list of most overrated books. So I want to share with you just, the, it's a, just quick little three paragraphs of what the magazine says about the Word of God. First of all, the beginning of the text, the beginning of the quote, I pretty much agree with, uh, maybe not for the reasons they wrote it. What they say is, the Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but don't actually read it. Now, on that point right there, I'm in complete agreement. The Bible is rated very highly by people who don't actually read it or actually live by it, but who like to think that they do. You'll find a lot of people who never have cracked open the book, but will we'll try to live by those principles. And they'll go to church on a regular basis here and there, but they don't ever actually know what the Bible says. They like the idea of the Bible. They still hold on to the religiosity of, of the Bible, but they haven't actually cracked it open. I think what they mean, though, when they say this, is there are a bunch of hypocrites out there who like to use the Bible as a weapon against people they don't like, and if they actually read the Bible, they would see how condemned they were for so doing. I would hope that's what they meant, because that's also a true statement. But either way, that first paragraph, I don't have too much of a problem with. It's when it gets down to the second paragraph that things just go off the rails. It says there are some good parts in it. Notice the derision in their tone. But overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. Man didn't produce it, unless you mean like the Gutenberg press, you know, smacking those things together and printing it and publishing it, that sort of thing, but that's not what they mean. They mean some guy somewhere in some cave with a penknife and, and a quill and ink writing the Bible and some nut passing it off to some other nut writing more of it until some other nut wrote it and wrote it until a bunch of nuts all got together and finished writing it and then they called it the Bible and man produced it. And it's okay, they say. It's all right. It's not the greatest thing ever, people, but it's, 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 it's adequate. It's a perfectly cromulent book if you want to hold it to that. Well, you see their position, how it differs with mine. And then they give you the list. Now, I'm a preacher, okay? And when you're a preacher, you can't help but... I, I have a, a mentor, uh, Bob Turner, preached for a long time in Arkansas and then went on to be an instructor at various Christian colleges. And he, he would always tell uh, preachers to think sermonically. And what he means is everything you see and everything you hear, you need to find a reason to make a sermon out of it. Because Sunday comes every single week. You know, you've got to come up with another sermon all the time. So always be looking for sermons. Well, I don't think they intended it. But when I read this, I immediately said, hey, there's a sermon there. Because they gave me my list. I see everything in outline because I'm a preacher. Everything has to be a sermon outline. So what do they say about the Bible? They say it's repetitious. They say it's self-contradictory. They say it is sententious. They say it is foolish. And they say it is ill-intentioned. Well, I don't believe any of that, at least the way they mean it. But I see a sermon there about what the world thinks about the Bible. This is the book that I'm governed by. This is not just a book that I think is okay. It's not just a book that on a rainy day I might crack it open. This is a book that determines my eternal destiny and I live according to it for that reason. So when some rando from Gentleman's Quarterly attacks it, my compulsion is to defend it. And when you say it's repetitive, or when you say it's self-contradictory, when you say it is sententious, or everything that they said, my inclination is to say, is it? And if it's not, what is it? So let's do that. Before we get to why we're governed by it, Let's answer the challenge against it. First of all, is the Word of God repetitive? Actually, yes, the Word of God is repetitive. 
pretty much no matter how you slice it, there's no doubt about it. They mean it as a negative thing. Like it just won't shut up and it keeps saying the same thing over and over as though that's a drag. No, I'm glad that the book is as thick as it is. And I'm glad that the book is constantly restating the same things to do because I tend to be hard of hearing and I tend to be stubborn and I tend to need to be told whether it's a little me and my mom is the one telling me or it's the big me and my father in heaven is the one telling me. I tend to need to be told to do something more than twice. So yes, your Bible's repetitive. And it carries with it many repetitive themes. Take, for example, the story, the true account of the young man who is finds himself as a result of unfortunate circumstances in a foreign land, thrown in prison for circumstances he didn't have anything to do with, but because the miraculous power of God is able to interpret dreams. At the same time, not by coincidence, the ruler of that land has dreams he can't shake and doesn't understand until along comes this chosen person of God who's able to interpret those dreams and as a result produce great blessings not only for that nation but his nation and himself as a result. That's the story of Joseph, and as you know, it's also the story of Daniel, and they lived a good deal apart from each other. Now, if you view the Bible as just a, a, a storybook, you might think, I've already read this chapter, but it's not a storybook. These are real people through whom God did miraculous things, and if God wants to inspire Joseph in a similar way as he will inspire Daniel, that's God's prerogative. If he wants to repeat that great idea, who am I to stop him? Or you take Moses and Jesus. We could spend an entire series comparing those two. They're both lawmakers. They're both leaders. They're both uh, priests. They're both uh, prophets. They're both rulers of a kingly sort, but not actually being kings. They carry so much similarities between them, and yet they're not the same person. And yet Moses directly offers that inviting comparison when he says, another prophet like me will come. And he's referring to the Messiah to be, Jesus. Yes, there's repetition there. Or you take the entire period of the judges, the, the clock of the judges, where at the 12 o'clock hour, everything is hunky-dory with Israel in the land. And then by 3 o'clock, they are all sinning and going into, into debauchery. So that by 6 o'clock, God sent a foreign nation to punish them. And then at 9 o'clock, they're begging for mercy. And then by 12 o'clock, God sent a deliverer, saved the day. Everything is hunky-dory again. So now that everything's fine, we can go back into sin, be punished, beg, get fine, sin, be punished. That cycle of the judges just goes on and on. In that case, the repetition is on purpose. It's showing you the nature of a sinful man and how he just keeps messing up and yet how God keeps giving him a savior no matter how many times he messes up. Is your Bible repetitive? Absolutely. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter. We're not just going to talk about it. Let's read the thing. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. 2 Peter 1, oh sorry, verses 12 and 13. 2 Peter 1, 12. Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it is meet or necessary, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Notice he says in verse 12, I know that you already know these things, but I think it's necessary to say them all over again. Why? Because Peter understands the human nature. Peter understands people tend to need to be told twice. Speaking of Peter, turn the page. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write to you to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Why does the Bible repeat itself? Why did Peter repeat himself? Because he knows by being reminded of something, you can stir in someone a call to action. 
You might be called to action, and then you might be sparked and motivated to move and to do for God, and then that spark fades, and your enthusiasm fades. Is the preacher supposed to just let it fade? No, he's going to say it again. He's going to relight the flame. He's going to spark it over again. The Bible is repetitive, but that's a feature, not a bug. Next, is the Bible self-contradictory? Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians, go to something that Paul says. Just two verses, verses 12 and also verse 15. Philippians 3 verse 12. Not as though I had already attained or were already perfect, Paul says. But I follow after so that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of, Christ Jesus. Verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Now wait, 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 wait a minute, Paul. You just said in verse 12 that you weren't perfect, but now you're saying in verse 15, let's all be perfect. Which is it? Is that contradictory? And that simple little wordplay there is the kind of attack that you will hear from critics of the Bible who go in with a bias against the Bible looking for anything they can say or do to discredit the Bible. They'll say, look, something as simple as verse 12 and verse 15, how it contradicts itself, and the Bible is full of those sort of contradictions, except no. What the Bible is full of is statements made by people in the context of the things which they say. And like anybody who speaks, if you speak long enough, you're gonna say two things that sound contradictory if you don't put them in context. If you don't know why is he saying this, what is the exact wording he's using, when does he say it, to whom does he say it, for what reason does he say it, that's context. And we all understand the way context works. Even those people who criticize the Bible understand the way context works, but they conveniently forget how it works when it comes time to attack the Bible. The Greek philosopher Aristotle says, a thing cannot both be and not be. Okay, true. But the end of the quote is, at the same time. That door, those doors back there cannot both be open and not open. Except, yes, they can. They're closed right now, but I can go over there and open them. And when I do, those doors were both not open and open. But at the same time, they cannot both be and not be. Your Bible will never, it does never, because it's finished, so it's, it's done. But it will never say to do something at the same time it says not to do something. It will never condemn you for doing something that it also praises you for in the same time, in the same context. But the Bible does repeatedly show a people and show a culture and show a law that changes, necessitating a change of commandment and a change of circumstance. For example, Peter, before he met Jesus, could not have eaten a pig. And yet in Acts chapter 9, he has a vision where Jesus says, Peter, kill and eat that pig among other animals. Peter tries to argue, says, oh God, no, I've never eaten a pig before. And God says, but I've cleansed it now, you can. Is that contradictory? No, it's a change. The circumstances have altered. The context is different. Is your Bible self-contradictory? No. Not unless you want to define it on the strictest of terms. It's just sometimes it's one thing and sometimes it's another. Yeah, sure, but that's everything. In the context of its doctrine, no, what it says, it means. Is the Bible, oh sorry, is the Bible sententious? Sententious, fancy word from the GQ writer, means does it get on its high horse and act like it's better than everybody? Well, look, the Bible, it has no mouth to speak. The Bible has no feet or body to get on a horse high or low. So I imagine what they mean when they use this argument is the people who use the Bible, are they sententious? And yeah, sometimes they are. Sometimes people use the Bible 
for unbiblical means and unbiblical purposes. And they go into having a Bible understanding with a high horse mentality as though they are superior to the lost, as though they are better than the lost. Listen, Christians, you're not better than the lost. You're better off because you're going somewhere better. But your whole motivation is to try to save the lost from their terrible end so they can be better off than what they are. That doesn't make you better than anybody. But if you have a, an ungodly attitude, if you have this high horse mentality, then yeah, you sure, you can be sententious. And it's unfortunate that there are so many public and notorious and noteworthy so-called Bible people who act like that to give it that reputation. But the Bible itself, it doesn't have that reputation unless you mean the author of it. God, if you want to call it a high horse, I prefer to call it a high throne, sits above the world and has the right to judge the world. And what is the Bible and how does God's word judge the world? All of us equally says we are all under sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. That's how the Bible judges us. But the Bible doesn't pick and choose. And the Bible is not a flawed thing pretending it's not flawed while it points out others' flaws. That's sententious. If you want a good example of that, you don't go to the Bible. You go back to the 1980s to the feud between Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker. I don't know how many of you remember this or even cared. It's before my time, I think, or I was... I was I was a baby, but it was a period where these two televangelists were fighting over the same market share, that market share being people who like to talk about God, but not actually do what he says, and like to watch things about God at like three o'clock in the morning on cable television. So they were fighting over that market share. They didn't want to split it. They wanted it for each other. They started, you know, fighting with each other in very public ways. One would accuse the other one and, and use connections to get him... Uh, it, uh, charged with tax evasion. The other one would, would hire a private investigator to find out that he was stepping out on his wife with a lady of the night in a New Orleans brothel. It was this huge big thing back and forth. They both faked their tears. They both talked about how they're changed men. They both went back to doing the same thing. Both sitting on their high horses, lobbing their own little hand grenades at each other. Little holy hand grenades firing at each other. Neither one of them representing God. Neither one of them representing the book they claimed was the Word of God. Is the Bible sententious? No, but a lot of people are. And unfortunately, the Bible has to sometimes get dragged through the mud with them when it doesn't deserve that. Is the Bible foolish? No. But I can see why a non-believer might think so. Because if you ask me what to do to become a Christian, I'm going to tell you, you've got to turn your mind over to God, a being you've never seen before, whose word is written 2,000 years ago plus, and you've got to confess your faith in him, even if everyone tries to kill you for doing so. And you've got to be plunged in water so that he will take away your sins. And that sounds, if you just try to, all of us have heard that. If you just try to remember what it's like to hear that for the first time. Or to try to zoom out of body and hear that as a total non-believer with no bias. See, I'm, I'm helplessly biased toward the Bible because it was written by my master. So I'm partial to it. But if I wasn't partial to it at all, and I read the things that it says to do, I could totally see why it's insane. I totally get why someone might think that. You mean this person's got to be dipped in water to be saved? Yeah. 1 Peter 3.21, among others. It sounds crazy. And yet, what do we read in that book, Isaiah 55? What does God say? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It's my book, not yours. If man had written it, then man would have made it make perfect sense to man. And it would have carried all the flaws and foibles that come with a man-made book. If you read the Quran, you'll see what I'm talking about. It sounds kind of religious until you get down to the nitty and to the gritty and you realize this is obviously a book written by a very flawed man. 
But the Bible is not a book written by a flawed man. It's written by a flawless God whose mind is not the mind of a perfect man. It's the mind of a perfect God. He doesn't think like I think. His ways are not my ways. Paul comments on this. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, listen to what the writer says here about foolishness and how the world views it and why God doesn't really care if you think it's foolishness or not. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are, which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, the so-called wise men. So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, it did not know God. It pleased God by the so-called foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The world can classify it, codify it, seal it away as foolishness. That's their prerogative. But I don't answer to the world, and I don't preach the world's gospel. I preach a divine gospel. And it may not make sense to you, but I tell you what happens every single time to the one it doesn't make sense to. If you can get that person to love Jesus, if you can get that person to say, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, then they, if they truly repent, will do anything Jesus asked them to do. And if you ask them, if you can give them the book, chapter, verse to run through a brick wall, if they've really repented, they'll take off running. But he doesn't ask you to run through a brick wall. He says, be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. So it sounds foolishness to somebody who's never repented. But if you've given your heart to Christ and your, your allegiance to Christ, you'll do anything he asks of you. So it won't be foolish to you. Is it foolish? No, not to me it's not. Here's the last one. Is the Bible ill-intentioned? Now look at that list. If you can read it, let me go over it again. Is the Bible repetitive? Sure, but that's not a bad thing. Is the Bible self-contradictory? No, but I can see why someone might think so without doing enough research. Is the Bible sententious? No, but the people who use it sometimes can be, and it can kind of get lumped in with that. Is the Bible foolish? No, but you can see why someone would perceive it that way because they're not a believer. But I got nothing praiseworthy to say about this last one. This, the very statement here, that's ill-intentioned. The, the Bible is not proceeding from a bad assumption. The Bible is not motivated with a cynical mindset. The Bible is not operating from a negative mindset. The Bible is positive. The Bible is reassuring. The Bible is comforting. The Bible is hope bringing. The Bible is salvation offering. None of those things are ill-intentioned. The Bible does not have your worst intentions in mind. The Bible wants the best for you, not the worst for you. The Bible desires for your salvation. I say the Bible as though it has a mind. The mind which created it, wrote it for you, wants the best for you. It is not ill-intentioned. Look at Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. If you want a great summary of the motivation behind God's eternal plan, which is written for us in the Word of God, look at Ephesians 3, verse 8. Paul says, Unto me... The less than the least of all the saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. A phrase which means if I started looking for the, the bottom of that well, it's a bottomless well. To find and to the point where I could say, okay, now I've learned everything about the riches of Christ. You'll never run out of learning about the riches of Christ. Verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to this 
intent. Okay, what is the intention of the plan of God? What was his mindset when he set forth in motion the plan of God to the intent that now unto the uh, principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church this manifold wisdom of God. Literally, the full spectrum of the wisdom of God. If God's wisdom was a color, it'd be a rainbow. You'd see every single color there is to see. God has unveiled for us the fullness of his wisdom. And what is it? What does he say? The mystery of salvation. The fact that the riches of Christ are unsearchable. If you go diving in, you'll be blessed perpetually. That's not a bad intention. That's a good intention. God always intended for you to take the plunge into Him and to be blessed forevermore doing. So, is the Bible ill-intentioned? Oh, it's just the opposite. The Bible wants the best for you. I, you, sinners, we have been ill-intentioned. We wanted the worst for us. We didn't know that's what it was. We were lied to by the devil. That's why we sinned. And so we dove headfirst into a ditch. And then we got stuck there. And if God was ill-intentioned, He would have left us there. Instead, He sent His Son to die for us so that we could get out, though we didn't deserve it. That's not like ill-intentioned to you? No. And here's the book that tells you all about it. So, what do we know about the Bible based on what the world says? Is the Bible repetitive? No, it is not. It's historical. Is the Bible self-contradictory? No. It is situational. Read it in context. Is the Bible sententious? No. It's aspirational. Is the Bible foolish? No. It's countercultural. It's not foolish. You just don't like it. Is the Bible ill-intentioned? Absolutely not. It's invitational. No one who wanted the worst for someone ever invited them to salvation. You invite them to condemnation. That's the dirty fact. You're already condemned. He's inviting you to something far better. Now that's not my subject matter. That's just the introduction. Don't worry. Just kidding. I believe the Bible. I believe in the Bible. I believe through the Bible. Because I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And a disciple of Christ is governed by the Bible. I'm not governed by GQ magazine and whatever wisdom they may impart. But I'm governed by the Bible. I believe the Bible. And what that means is I believe the Bible is inspired. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. David speaking, he says, God put His Word on my tongue. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me and His Word was on my tongue. So let's ask a question. What kind of man was David? Was David a good person? Sure. He was a man after God's own heart, we always say. Well, that was true when he was a little boy. He was a shepherd and he was about to go fight Goliath. Was David always a man after God's own heart? No, at one point he was a man after Bathsheba's body, not after God's heart. Was David perfect? No. So when a critic looks at the writers of the Bible, how do they determine who wrote the Bible? What did they say about the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? Who, what kind of man was David? Was he a good man? I suppose he was an okay man, better than I, I could say. But was David a perfect man? No. And see, here's the thing. David in that verse doesn't say he was just some nice guy. David in that verse doesn't just say he was just trying to help people. Because that's what you'll get from a, uh, from a more tender-hearted critic of the Bible. What they'll say is, well, the people who wrote the Bible, they had good intentions. 
They, ha- they were positively intentioned. They were just trying to help people. And so they kind of put together food for thought ideas and, uh, you know, slapped it along with the history of an, of an Israelite nation. And they tried to pass it off as wisdom from on high. But really all it was was just their best bet for how to live a good and, and sound life. Kind of like what Joel Olstein does, which is as far from the Bible as anything you're going to get. It, it sounds good. It sounds like a good kind of life. That's the kind of stuff that they gave. They were good, but they weren't entirely truthful. Okay, well, hey, here's the thing. If they were lying, then they're not good men. Because good men aren't liars. Bad men are liars. And David doesn't say, I was just some nice guy trying to help people. David says, God was speaking through me. Is he lying? If he is, he's not a good man. So what is he? He must be a bad man. Except David condemns himself. I mean, not to hell in this text, but he, he points out his flaws. As did Moses write his own flaws in the book of Exodus. He's a murderer in Exodus. Who wrote that in Exodus 2? Moses did. David is, is the king when the, the testimony of his sin is transcribed and passed around and known by all. Peter sinned all the time. And yet he's supposed to be the first pope. He wasn't, but that's what they say. Surely he could have said, let's just nix that part. Let's forget that part. Let's don't mention that part. It'd be like half the New Testament of all the things that Peter did wrong. And yet it's all there because that's your Bible. It's warts and all. But these are supposed to be bad men who wrote it. Bad men don't write a book that condemns themselves. And I'll tell you what else. Bad men do lie. And bad men will suffer for a lie. And bad men will kill for a lie. But bad men will not allow themselves to be killed for a lie. Nobody will let himself be killed for a lie. Nobody. I'll say it again. Nobody will let himself be killed for a lie. Now, Muhammad died for a lie. He died in battle fighting for his lie. But he didn't go to a chopping block singing songs to Allah and allowing himself to be killed. Paul did. Peter did. Matthew, Peter, James, Andrew, John. Every apostle, except for John, every apostle went to a proverbial or literal chopping block. And every single one of them was given the opportunity by that emperor who put them there to renounce Christ and save their life. And every single one of those bad men who were all lying said, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Bring it down. And so down the axe went. And they all died knowing their reward was waiting for them. Bad men don't do that. If just one of them did it. Listen, if just one of them did it, that still wouldn't disprove the Bible. It would just prove that men can be weak and men can fail. And one of those disciples could have said, just to save their own skin, you're right, I just made it up, please don't kill me. And that still wouldn't prove it true. It would just prove that they're weak. But not a one of them, every single time, after time, after time, times 12, every one of them went singing hymns to be killed, knowing their reward was waiting for them. No, they're not bad people. So who are they? And what does the critic say? Well, they must be crazy people. They must be crazy people. Some nut in a cave started writing, passed it off to some other nut in the cave who started writing. Until on and on they wrote until they decided they were done. Then they all slapped it together. Someone bound it in leather. And here we have it in our laps. And all we're reading is just a bunch of nonsense ramblings that we just choose to believe is, is good stuff. One crazy person can write. You get enough monkeys with typewriters in a room, you can get Shakespeare eventually. But we're not talking about one crazy person. 
we're talking about 40 different crazy people over the course of thousands of years from different cultures, different ethnicities, different religions, different nationalities, different languages, different everything, different social statuses, different economic statuses. All of them wrote one harmonious book with prophecy and fulfillment spreading across the multitude of them. You telling me 40 crazy people did that? That's the fairy tale. That's the fantasy. This is not the fantasy. This, if it's not just a bunch of good people doing something, if it's not a bunch of bad people doing something, if it's obviously not a bunch of crazy people doing something, then who wrote the Bible? The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His word was on my tongue. It's just what it says it is. It's an inspired book. I believe the Bible is inspired. I believe the Bible is authoritative. I believe in the Bible. Look at 2 Timothy with me. Verses 3.16. i got one more and then I'm done with you. Don't worry. 2 Timothy 3.16. Listen to this beautiful little summary of the Word of God. All Scripture, that's your Bible, is given by the inspiration of God. Literally, it has been breathed out from God's very mouth. And is profitable. It's of great value to you. For what purpose, Paul? It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that the man of God, that's you, may be complete, because this is all you need, Throughly furnished, through and through, you are furnished to do every good work he tells you to do. How do I know what to do? This book tells me what to do. It is profitable. I believe in the Bible. What I mean when I say that is I believe in this book. I need this book. I value this book. I don't believe in anyone else's book. I don't stake my claim in anyone else's book. I don't go to the self-help section for my help. This is my self-help book. I believe in this book. I appreciate its value because it is profitable for doctrine. It tells me what is right. It is profitable for reproof. It tells me when I'm not right. It's profitable for correction. It tells me how to get right. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness. It tells me how to stay right. Find me another book that can do it. Find me another book that can do it as perfectly as this one. And all you'll give me is another Bible. Your copy. Hopefully not wrapped in duct tape like mine is because it's falling apart. There is no other book. It's just the one. This is the only one that you need. I believe in this book because I'm a disciple who's governed by it. Last one. I believe the Bible is not just, not just uh, necessary, or not just authoritative, pardon me, but necessary. In other words, I believe through this book. I know what to believe because of this book. I'm able to believe what I believe because of this book because without this book, I wouldn't know what to believe and neither would you. Everybody have your Bibles open? Great. Shut your Bibles. Everybody shut your Bibles. Shut all your Bibles. Now I want you to forget everything you've ever learned about God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit. Now somebody tell me something about God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit. You got nothing. Because you weren't there. At the earliest, it was 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. You weren't there. You don't know Him. You've never seen Him. So how do you know anything about God? You don't know anything about God without this book. This is how you believe. It's through this that you believe. Look at Psalm 19. My favorite psalm in the whole catalog. 
And I want you to see that same idea illustrated by the poet David. Psalm 19 begins, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. And there is no speech nor language where that voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and the world's to the end of the, wor- the words to the end of the world. In them has He set a tabernacle for the sun, which like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and His circuit to the end of it, from east to west, is the sun. And there is nothing that is hidden the heat thereof. Now stop right there. That's Psalm 19, 1 through 6. You know what that poet is saying in those first few verses? It's saying that through my eyes, through my observation, by going outside in the middle of the night and looking up at the stars, I can marvel that something bigger than all of that put all of that there. I can appreciate through nature, through creation, that there is a creator. But if I just stop there, all my eyes can tell me all my empirical senses can show me is that there is something bigger than me out there. I don't know who he is. I don't know who she is. I don't know who they are. I don't know if he's good or bad. I don't know what he wants from me. If anything, I don't know if he's about to kill me tomorrow. If he's like Zeus and he rolls on the wrong side of the bed and he starts chucking thunderbolts at me. I don't know anything about him. All I know is somebody out there is bigger than me and made all this. But I believe who that someone is through the Bible. Psalm 19, keep going. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Who's the simple? It's the person who looks up at the stars and says, wow, something bigger than me is out there. Yep, time for bed. And he never looks into it any more than that. That's a simple person. But if he opens his Bible... He can be made wise as to who that maker is. Verse 8, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, that's this right here, those pages in your lap, than gold. Sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, so I can be upright and innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my strength, my Redeemer. At the end of that psalm, David starts thinking about all the sins he's forgotten about. Sins that are secret to everybody, sometimes sins that are secret even to himself because we have bad memories and we do something and then we forget we did it and that sin is still staining our record. So sometimes we just have to say, God, forgive me of the ones I've forgotten about. How does David even know to do that? Because he knows there is a God who cares about his thoughts, who cares about his deeds, who has seen his actions and will hold him accountable. How does he know that? The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul I believe through this book. And it, it saddens me when my brethren are trying to undermine this book. And we get sermons in pulpits all over the world from places with buildings that have the word church on their label and Christ on their sign. And they don't preach this book anymore because they say it's out of date. And they say it doesn't matter anymore. And they'll reference everybody other than Peter, Paul, James, David, Moses, Solomon. They won't talk about Isaiah. And they won't talk about Nahum. And they won't talk about Habakkuk. And they won't talk about John. And they won't talk about Jesus. It used to be that it used to be the fight was mention somebody other than Jesus because 
there's more than just the red letters in your Bible. He inspired those other guys to write more. But now they don't even talk about Jesus anymore because this book is no longer important to them anymore. And churches are dying because of it. Congregations are withering and dying because of it. But if you want a church to grow, preach this book. Give them this book. Convert the soul. Make wise the simple. I believe in this book. I believe this book. I believe through this book. I'm a disciple governed by this book. Now, how about you? Are you here this evening and you're not a follower of this book? You may be someone who loves it. You may be someone who has a, a, a big, fat, white one sitting on your coffee table and no one's ever opened it. If you do, you'll hear this loud, crickle, crackle sound because it's never been opened before. Crack it open. Start reading it. Start marking it up, highlighting it, underlining it. By all means, read it, study it, and then obey it, the B-I-B-L-E. Because it's the only one you got that's going to get you to heaven. The Bible did not shed its blood for you. The Bible did not pave the way to heaven for you. The Bible didn't die on the cross for you. But the Bible tells you who did. And without it, you would never know. So do what it says to do to find the one who did. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Christ. Be baptized into Christ. Live faithfully for Christ. And then when he comes back, you can live with Christ forever and ever. Amen. So says the Bible. Do you have a need? Tonight's the night. Make it known right now as we stand and sing. I have decided to follow.